Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast, here to talk about what happened in Orlando, Florida on Sunday. Today marks the most deadly shooting in American history. The shooter was apparently armed with a handgun and a powerful assault rifle. This massacre is therefore a further reminder of how easy it is for someone to get their hands on a weapon that lets them shoot people in a school or in a house of worship or a movie theater or in a nightclub. And we have to decide if that's the kind of country we want to be. That's President Obama speaking Sunday afternoon. And and this tragedy has quickly become the center of a debate about what kind of country we want to be in so many different ways, primarily on the presidential campaign as the candidates to replace Obama have responded in sharp contrast with one another. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover the campaign. I'm Mara Lyason, national political correspondent. I'm Ron Ilving, editor correspondent. And I'm Carrie Johnson, the justice correspondent. All right. Well, Carrie, we'll start with you because you've been covering this since the moment uh, we first learned of the shooting. We're talking on Monday afternoon. What's the latest information we have at this point? Scott, the shooter is Omar Mateen, a 29-year-old security guard, an American, born in New York, lived in Florida for the last many years, responsible for now the most deadly uh, mass shooting in modern American history. The FBI director says this guy appears to have radicalized online. There's no hint this plot was directed out outside of the U.S., and the FBI is sparing no resource in trying to find out oh, who else may have helped him, if anyone. So at this point in time, no indication that there was a connection to ISIS or other international terror groups, but we do know that uh, Mateen declared an allegiance of sorts in, in 911 calls? Yeah, uh, the FBI director said that uh, in a series of 911 calls from the Pulse nightclub, in the middle of the attack, uh, this shooter apparently pledged allegiance to the leader of the Islamic State, but Scott, he also declared um, some kind of a affiliation with the Sarnayev brothers responsible for the Boston Marathon bombing. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, on other occasions, talked about enemies of the Islamic State. So his motivations are kind of all over the map, according to counterterrorism officials. And this is a man who we've learned has been on the FBI's radar for several years at this point. Yeah, the FBI revealed he'd been the subject of a 10-month-long investigation, starting in 2013 when his co-workers at a courthouse in Florida reported he was making inflammatory and maybe extremist statements. The FBI went so far as to uh, bring confidential informants to try to talk with this guy. They surveilled his movements. They uh, interviewed him on two occasions, but didn't find enough suspicion to launch a, a major investigation or charge him with anything. And Scott, this guy came on the radar all over again in 2014 after another man from Florida, uh, not too far from where Omar Mateen lived, uh, traveled to Syria and became the first American to blow himself up as a suicide bomber in Syria. All right. Well, Carrie, uh, we know you've been here since like four in the morning (laughs) reporting on this, and I'm sure you're going to be up early tomorrow as we continue to cover this. Thanks for bringing us up to speed on what we know so far. Thank you. All right. Bye, Carrie. It's Carrie Johnson. You know, we're learning a lot more information about what exactly happened. And and as, as always the case, after a terrible event like this, in the days following it, you start to learn stories about the people who lost their lives. Ron, 49 people are dead, at least 49 people dead, many of them very young, many of them Latino, many of them gay. The shock doesn't wear off for a long time. And when it does begin to wear off as we as we go to the funerals for some of these 49, and we hope that it's only 49, although there are several others still in what's described as grave condition, 
as we go to these funerals, we hear these eulogies, it's an added dimension of difficulty, sorrow perhaps, uh, in many people's cases, uh, unlike some of the other mass shootings that we've had, although it's very hard to compare one to another. Mara, going back to, to that clip we heard from President Obama, uh, what, what really jumped out to me yesterday when we heard this speech was that this is something that Obama has done over and over and over again, more than a dozen times during his presidency. And to me, he sounded frustrated and angry that, that he keeps coming out and giving basically the exact same speech. Well, yes, because uh, he has proposed at least some responses to keeping guns and assault rifles out of the hands of the wrong people, and he hasn't gotten any cooperation from Congress. Although in this particular instance, he is really the number three player among three big players here because we're in the midst of a presidential election. Mm -hmm. And we're going to spend basically the rest of the podcast talking about the two people who want to replace Obama. But but Ron, I, I wonder uh, it, just in terms of how this could affect uh, the administration's standing, its approval numbers, things like that. The fact that this is a guy who was on the FBI's radar, that they investigated him for 10 months, decided to do nothing. And then we find that he comes and kills 50 people in the deadliest shooting in the history of the United States. That seems to me like the type of thing that can really damage an administration. It will certainly be disturbing to a lot of people to realize that the FBI with all of its tools, with all of its investigative powers, is not able truly to see inside someone's mind or intentions. And unless he has actually harmed someone or said that he's going to harm someone or taken steps to do so, they are actually not empowered to take him into custody any more than they would be anyone who speaks against the government or anyone who, in some sense or another, makes hostile remarks towards groups of people, no matter how hostile they might be. Mm -hmm. That's part of living in an open and free society. Right. As, as frustrating as it can feel after after the fact. It's not the minority report. We cannot arrest people for things they haven't done yet. And let's remember that this was a native-born American citizen that yes. we're talking about. He was of Afghan heritage. Most all Americans have some kind of heritage, but he was a U.S. citizen and he had not committed any crimes. And so there was no particular reason to arrest him. But the fact that he was a known wolf, even though we're not sure yet if he was a lone wolf, that is a huge, huge thing that he yes. seems to have slipped through the cracks. Yes, and, and it if is someone disturbing. wanted to, they mm -hmm. could make a huge case about this. But interestingly enough, but then Donald what, what Trump are, isn't but, doing that. But what are exactly what then exactly are the criteria for arresting the person? What crime would he know. be charged with? Being a known wolf? Is that somewhere in a felonious I don't know. Maybe, list maybe. Of, well, I think what somebody would say is you need to do. Uh, you need to have a way that if that known wolf goes to try to buy a gun, some kind of an alert goes off. Well, Not necessarily that there's a legal ban yeah. to him buying it, but that somebody is notified. Well, Mara, Hillary Clinton made that exact point. So let, let's pivot now and talk about the presidential campaign, because you're right. At, at this point in a president's last year, he's, he's almost the third most important person to talk about big issues like this that come out. So both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton spoke today. They both called this an attack on all Americans, an attack on the LGBT community. They both called for a unified response, and that's about where the similarities stop. So let's start with what Hillary Clinton had to say. She was speaking in Cleveland, Ohio. She gave a speech where she called for tighter restrictions on assault weapons. If the FBI is watching you for suspected terrorist links, you shouldn't be able to just go buy a gun with no questions asked and outlined a plan for dealing with lone wolf attackers like we think uh, Mateen is. So, Ron, to you, what were the 
key points of this Clinton speech? The key point would be that we need to go forward together, that we need not to demonize any one particular group. Since 9-11, law enforcement agencies have worked hard to build relationships with Muslim American communities. Millions of peace-loving Muslims live, work, and raise their families across America. Clinton talked about things like uh, increasing intelligence sharing so that maybe local law enforcement would know when the FBI is looking into people. She talked about on the international front doing more to kind of stop uh, terror groups from moving money and, and, and agents from country to country. But it jumped out to me that the biggest applause line she got, an extended standing ovation, was about curbing, uh, curbing assault weapons. Even as we make sure our security officials get the tools they need to prevent attacks, it's essential that we stop terrorists from getting the tools they need to carry out the attacks. And that is especially true when it comes to assault weapons like those used in Orlando and San Bernardino. Typically, Democrats have, have not wanted to talk about gun control measures in, in general elections, but this seems like something that Hillary Clinton is really leaning into. Yes, until this cycle. Yes. They didn't want to, but now they do. She made a big point of her difference with Bernie Sanders over this issue. That was the policy prescription that got the biggest applause line today. What's jumped out at me about this speech was that this was a speech, uh, two speeches today, dueling uh, visions of what a president should act like in this kind of situation. Everything about Hillary Clinton today was meant to project dignity, restraint, uh, what she considers presidentialness. She said, we have to attack this problem with clear eyes. With clear eyes, steady hands, unwavering determination and pride in our country and our values. Who do you think she was saying is not like that? Mm -hmm. And she, her voice was very modulated. She's clearly made a big effort to be as calm and dignified as possible. The model, the model of presidential behavior, so as to say, can you see me as president? Ask yourself the same question when that other guy comes out later this afternoon. Let's make one more point about the differing tone of these speeches, because Hillary Clinton got into a lot of different policy proposals she's put forward before. But she also spent a lot of time talking about uh, decrying what she called anti-Muslim inflammatory rhetoric. And, and there was one point in the speech where, where Clinton compared what's going on right now to how the country compared to the September 11th terror attacks. Of course, she was a New York senator when those attacks took place. And, and she talked about George W. Bush. President Bush went to a Muslim community center just six days after the attacks to send a message of unity and solidarity to anyone who wanted to take out their anger on our Muslim neighbors and fellow citizens, he said, that should not and that will not stand in America. It is time to get back to the spirit of those days, the spirit of 912. Let's make sure we keep looking to the best of our country. And uh, Donald Trump, uh, when he gave his speech about a half hour later, talked a lot about Muslims across the board. He talked about Muslim communities in the U.S. and how they needed to do more to root out terrorists. But he also talked about continuing his idea of a temporary ban on immigration from all Muslims. I called for a ban after San Bernardino and was met with great scorn and anger. 
But now, many years, and I have to say many years, but many are saying that I was right to do so. And although the pause is temporary, we must find out what is going on. We have to do it. It will be lifted, this ban, when and as a nation we're in a position to properly and perfectly screen these people coming into our country. What was interesting about that was that he started out by saying, I called for a ban on Muslims after San Bernardino and was met with great scorn and anger, but now everybody's saying I'm right. And he went on to say that the immigration laws of the U.S. give the president the power to suspend entry into the country. Into the country of any class of persons. Now, any class, it really is determined and to be determined by the president for the interests of the United States. And it's as he or she deems appropriate. Hopefully, it's he in this case. So what he was saying, he was repeating the ban on a religion, which is probably unconstitutional. But then he refined it in the next paragraph. When I'm elected, I will suspend immigration from areas of the world where there is a proven history of terrorism against the United States, Europe, or our allies, until we fully understand how to end these threats. Because the president had this power, I can suspend immigration from certain areas of the world where there's terrorism, not using a religious test. So he was both repeating the ban, but also making it more constitutionally acceptable. This would mean, for example, that Christians from that same part of the world could not come to the United States and many of the other people who have been prominently featured in the immigration from this part of the world. The bottom line is that the only reason the killer was in America in the first place was because we allowed his family to come here. That is a fact, and it's a fact we need to talk about. This is Donald Trump's policy prescription, by the way. He doesn't have the kind of comprehensive plan that Hillary Clinton does to fight ISIS. What he has is immigration control is the most important way to fight terrorism. Immigration control was his focus again and again in the speech. He turned back to it. But we have to point out again that Omar Mateen, actually like Donald Trump, was born in Queens. The killer whose name I will not use or ever say, was born in Afghan, of Afghan parents, who immigrated to the United States. His father published That sure leaves the impression the that the guy was born in Afghanistan. The guy was born in the United States. He's an Afghan as much as that judge was a Mexican. Ron, this is um, a man who committed the worst shooting in American history is certainly on a far different plane, if not universe, than a federal judge. But it strikes me that this is this is another issue where right away the first thing that Donald Trump talks about is someone's ethnicity. Well, you are who your ethnicity says you are. If you were born in Queens, as Donald Trump was, you are not an American unless you are born of parents that Donald Trump considers to be Americans, apparently. Or if you are a federal judge who was born in Indiana, you are not an American unless your parents were Americans. And of course, in the case of Judge Curiel, his parents were Mexican immigrants. So he said in the speech, now his prepared remarks did not include him saying that this person was born an Afghan. It says that he was of Afghan heritage, which is accurate. But in his actual remarks, intentionally or not, Donald Trump has him born in Afghanistan, born in Afghan. Now, maybe that means to him born in Afghan because he was born of Afghan parents in the same way that Judge Curiel was, quote, a Mexican. Well, he said, you know, he he would not be in this country if we hadn't let his parents in this country. Mara, uh, Democrats like Hillary Clinton have responded to this call for a widespread temporary ban on, on Muslims entering the country 
basically with horror. But in exit poll after exit poll, we found something like seven in 10 Republican primary voters were very supportive of that policy. Well, that's what's so interesting about this speech. This was a speech that sounded a lot like the kind of full bore, unadulterated Trump from the Republican primary campaign. And the same polls showed that majorities of Americans opposed the Muslim ban. Just it was a mirror image of Republicans who supported it. Now, the one big thing he did differently in this speech, although he repeated that kind the call for the ban, is he heaped praise on the LGBT community and tried to drive a wedge between gay and lesbian people and Muslims. Hillary Clinton can never claim to be a friend of the gay community as long as she continues to support immigration policies that bring Islamic extremists to our country and who suppress women, gays, and anyone else who doesn't share their views or values. That was a true general election pivot for Donald Trump. And I think we should point out that actually, uh, over the course of his campaign, Trump has consistently been supportive of LGBT rights. He, um, when, when, when Ted Cruz was was using the so-called bathroom bills as a wedge issue. Donald Trump said it doesn't matter. People should use whatever bathroom they want to use. There's no doubt about it. On this particular issue, he has been very ecumenical. And as a matter of fact, uh, he has been much closer to the Democratic position uh, than the Republicans. So, Ron, a good chunk of the speech is about this this, um, Muslim immigration ban. This is something that that for, for months now, we have had so many Republicans in and out of Trump's campaign saying, Oh, I didn't really mean that. He's going to pivot away from that. He's going to change on tone, his tone on that. And this was also the occasion going back to last year. And let's remember that this was driven largely by the Paris attacks and then the San Bernardino attacks and that this really helped elevate Donald Trump out of the field of many Republicans all running for president, he really gained a lot of traction with this particular suggestion. However, it was also the first occasion for Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, to differentiate himself and say, we're better than that. And then more recently, as Donald Trump has become the presumptive nominee and Paul Ryan has tried to maintain some distance while still saying he would vote for him. The endorse with a 10-foot poll approach. One of the issues on which Paul Ryan has steadfastly said he differed from Donald Trump was this issue of a ban on Muslims coming to the country. Mara, this is something very popular with Republican primary voters. It's something the rest of the country uh, has has a different feel on, um, a good entry point into something we'll be talking a lot about over the next few months. How different is the general electorate from people who vote in the primaries, and how much do Americans want the approach that Donald Trump wants to take in combating ISIS, in going after terror in this very aggressive way? We're going to find that out. The general electorate is certainly different than the Republican primary electorate, which is almost completely white. However, it's been conventional wisdom for months. We've been saying that since Donald Trump's ratings shot up, after Paris and after San Bernardino, another terrorist attack on U.S. soil in particular would help him because his tough take-no-prisoners approach to ISIS is going to be something that people are going to appreciate. So we're going to see if he gains supporters from this. But don't forget, this speech and this horrific event comes after weeks of Donald Trump digging himself into a hole on the question of whether he's presidential and because of the comments he's made, the racial comments he's made. So if if we assume he's in a hole, how much does this help him get out of it? We're, we're going to find out. So, Mara, there's one other thing we need to get to. This was before the two big speeches today. Uh, both candidates made a round of, of, of calls in the morning to morning news programs. Hillary Clinton called into Morning Edition and talked to us for a bit. But uh, Donald Trump speaking to the Fox and Friends program 
uh, said something about Barack Obama that I think we need to highlight. We're led by a man that either is, is, is not tough, not smart, or he's got something else in mind. And there's something else in mind. You know, people can't believe it. People cannot be, uh, they cannot believe that President Obama is acting the way he acts and can't even mention the words radical Islamic terrorism. There's something going on. It's inconceivable. There's something going on. Mara, something going on, something else in mind. Well, as Donald Trump might put it, there are many people who interpreted (laughs) that comment as suggesting President Obama was either sympathetic with terrorism or somehow responsible for what was happening. Uh, He said this kind of thing before. Uh, He did score one rhetorical victory today because Hillary Clinton did mention the word radical Islamism. And she said it doesn't really matter what we call it. It's not a good idea to use radical Islamism because you tar a whole religion and we want to work with our allies. But it doesn't really matter whether you call it radical jihadism, which had been her preferred nomenclature. But the, the insinuation that somehow President Obama wanted this to happen is, I guess, classic Trump. Whether he really wants us to think that Obama wanted this event in Orlando to happen or not, he is certainly implying that President Obama has more sympathy with Muslims, certainly more sympathy with Islam, and perhaps even with radical Islam, and that that's why the president doesn't want to say those words, because he kind of has some attraction to that philosophy himself. And this all goes back, I mean, you have to say this in context, to Donald Trump's insistence long after others had let it go on the whole birther controversy and the strong suggestion that President Obama had not been born in the United States, that he was, say, born in Kenya, maybe raised in Indonesia, at raised, the time, he said he had evidence that this was the case. Raised uh, raised as a Muslim and then later brought to the United States as an adolescent and turned into a Christian by his maternal grandparents. This whole, you know, cock and bull story that uh, he stuck with long after everyone else, including some of the real kind of wacky places on the Internet, had abandoned it. So given that history, uh, Donald Trump seems to be implying here a connection between Barack Obama and the Muslim religion that goes beyond his name. So before we go... Ron, this is obviously the biggest story in America and will be for for, for weeks and if not months to come. But uh, other news does happen. And tomorrow we have the very last primary of the primary season. Have sympathy for the District of Columbia. It is the seat of our government here in Washington, D.C. But uh, it is not a particularly potent political entity in and of itself. The people who actually live here in Washington uh, do not get to have much to say about who comes here to Washington to run the government. The District of Columbia does not get to elect a member of the House uh, that does not get to elect a senator and is only in recent years been even able to vote for president. But we do get to have a presidential primary, and it does happen on Tuesday, June the 14th. It is just on the Democratic side on June 14th, and that will be won in all likelihood by Hillary Clinton, uh, if only because the demographics of the city pretty much match the demographics of those groups that have voted for her most heavily all through the primary. Bernie Sanders is is, is competing in this race. He's actually uh, made D.C. statehood a talking point. That's an issue that's been around for a long time, and it never really seems to go anywhere, but Mara, what what can we expect from Bernie Sanders tomorrow? Well, that's a good question. We're all waiting to find out what Bernie Sanders is going to do. Uh, he s- has said he wanted to fight on until the convention. He's also said that his decisions will be based on the kind of commitments he gets from Hillary Clinton when he sits down and talks to her, which will happen soon, about the issues that he cares about. But uh, the party has moved on. 
everyone has endorsed Hillary Clinton, the president, the vice president, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, so Bernie Sanders has to decide what he wants to do next, how he thinks he can best advocate for the positions that he and the issues that he cares about. That conversation between Sanders and Clinton is expected to begin in the evening of the day of the D.C. primary, that they're going to have a meeting and start talking about some of the commitments that he would like to see from her regarding the platform. And then, of course, we'll also have the issue of procedure, process, superdelegates, whether or not independents get to vote in the primaries, things like that that interest not only Bernie Sanders, but the millions of people who have voted for him and are his supporters still. All right. Well, that is it for now. A lot going on. We'll keep the podcast feed up to date as best we can. Of course, you can find more of our coverage at nprpolitics.org and on your local public radio station. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover the campaign. I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. And our justice correspondent, Carrie Johnson, joined us earlier, of course. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Podcast.